0: I'm going to be reading our text today from Acts chapter 1, the first three verses of the book of Acts, and it's just a jumping off place for us. I, I ask your prayers today because uh, this is a kind of a, a flyover uh, bird's eye view of some things that really all deserve uh, Some in-depth study, and I'm just wanting to give them to you rather quickly today. And uh, I don't do quickly well, so you pray for me uh, today. Each one of these things we're going to talk about really uh, could easily uh, have its own sermon, if not its own series of sermons. But let me tell you my stated goal before we get started. We're living in a world that is constantly... Bombarding our faith. And even if, uh, if you are very, very selective about what you ingest and what you put into your, your mind and your spirit and your psyche. Even watching commercials on television are trying to tear down our faith. There was a time that many of you lived in and grew up in that what you saw on television, what you heard on the radio, what you read in books what you got at school, all reaffirmed what you were learning in church. That society was on the same side as the church by and large. But that day is far grown, gone from where we are today. And because of that, if we're not careful, just the least seeds of, of doubt, of uncertainty, can creep into our mind and cause us to struggle with some things that ought to be settled issues. And I want to kind of speak to you today in a way to let you know that your faith in in God and in his son Christ Jesus is not illogical, it's not irrational, it's not just a, a pie in the sky, wish so, hope so you have some very good ground to stand on when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about these proofs today. Let's start in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to uh, the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I want to speak to you today just on the simple subject, proof. Proof. There are... is above us here a little comic strip that appeared many years ago uh, in the comic strip B.C. Johnny Hart was a Christian himself, and he has this little character praying and saying, God, if you're up there, give me a sign. (laughs) And you see crashing down a neon sign that says, I'm up here. Well, I want you to know God has given us a lot of signs that he's up there. How many of you, let me ask this, how many of you have ever experienced convincing proof in your own life that God is there and He cares and He's very active, a very present help in time of trouble? Amen. Amen. You know, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. Whether you're talking about uh, the heavens as it pertains to the beauty of the sunset, the promise of the sunrise, or you look up into a star filled night and see the immensity of our universe, or uh, as we have been able to do, to go into outer space, send out probes and telescopes into outer space, and have even been able to capture what those that came before us could not imagine the beauty of galaxies and superclusters of galaxies. The immenseness of the universe, the heavens declare God's glory. That's what Psalm 19 and 1 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens are an open book that point to the majesty of God. The sun, the moon, and the stars are God's prophets that speak to us that there is a God somewhere. In fact, This scripture literally means God has hammered out the heavens and He has spread them out and has showed off His craftsmanship, His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. One of the most famous physicists that there's ever been in modern history was a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. You may remember him, of course, he was wheelchair bound. I think he had Lou Gehrig's disease. He was only able to speak uh, through the use of a computer. Unfortunately, Hawking was not a believer and was uh, agnostic at best, an atheist at the worst. But here's what he had to admit. Stephen Hawking himself said the universe has not existed forever. Rather, the universe and time itself had a beginning, and he said its beginning was in the Big Bang. Well, I want to tell you, I don't fight science on this. I believe in a big bang because I believe the book of Genesis talks about a big bang. God stepped out in the middle of nothing and said, let there be light and bang, there was light. Amen. Christian apologist Stephen Meyer said that you can trace the universe like one would inhale a balloon. That you can, you can blow up a balloon right before it pops and then let all the air out and it goes back to what it was. And the fact that our universe is expanding the way it's expanding, you can reverse engineer it to realize that the universe had a starting point. It had a starting place. Uh, there's a famed atheist whose name was Richard Dawkins. He was an ethologist and an evolutionary biologist. He was interviewed by Ben Stein. And uh, Dawkins said, nobody knows how it got started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. And Ben said, well, what was that? He said it was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Ben Stein said, right, and how did that happen? He said, I told you, we don't know. Then Ben Stein pressed it further. He said... What do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in evolution? Dawkins said, now this is this world famous uh, biologist, scientist, who's also a devout atheist. He said, well, it could come about in the following way. It could be that some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology, and designed a form of life that needed, uh, that seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now now that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility, and I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Now this atheist said, I've looked at the science and I have to say that it's likely that this universe and that, and that earth and that life itself was designed. And he said, so it must have been some kind of alien race somewhere that seeded life on this planet. Which begs the question, where did the alien life come from? In other words, they are, are bent on not giving credit to a god because that shakes their underpinnings. Francis Crick, a biologist that helped uh, to discover DNA. Uh, Crick uh, said to overcome the huge hurdles of evolution of life from non-living chemicals on Earth, Crick proposed in a book called Life Itself that some form of primordial life was shipped to Earth billions of years ago in spaceships by supposedly more evolved alien beings. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is all of these brilliant, smart people that deny the existence of God, it really reveals that their objection to the God of the Bible is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. And I want you to understand that there are some people out there that are brilliant people. There are people out there that are even trying to be good moral people that deny or question the existence of God and they think that they have intellectual objections. But those intellectual objections are a smoke screen to hide spiritual objections. That they don't want there to be a God because if there is a God, then we're responsible to that God. But heavens declare the glory of God. And the earth itself, all the beauty of the earth. And the fact that the earth is positioned just the right space away from the sun, that the moon operates with its pull upon the earth and, and how the tides roll, the way earth is designed to uh, be inhabitable is a sign of God's glory. It's like earth was created specifically for biological life because it was. And mankind himself gives a hint to the glory of God. Just the way that we exist, the way that we think, the higher intelligence, the the abilities and talents that mankind has all gives a clue. One of the clues, one of the proofs that there is a God is something that is commonly known as natural law. People that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ people that have never read a Bible, people that have never been taught about the God of the Bible, people that have never heard of the Ten Commandments, folks that have never heard of Moses, still innately, some way, somehow know that there's a difference between right and wrong. You just know it's wrong to kill. You just know it's wrong to steal. You just know that there are things that are wrong. You just have this inner sense that there's right from wrong. Now, if the evolutionists are correct, one of the founding uh, ideas behind evolution is the survival of the fittest. And that is, is that the weakest among a species, the species is better if they go ahead and die off. Because that makes... As they reproduce, that makes the species weaker. Where is there room for love and compassion and mercy in that? And yet, if there's no God, if there's no natural law, if there's no right from wrong, just listen to what people say. They'll say, well, I can live any the old way I want to because I'm not hurting anybody. And if I'm hurting anybody, all I'm hurting is myself. To which I would respond, what in the world's wrong with hurting somebody? If you're only living for yourself, what does it matter if you hurt somebody else? Because even people that live in direct opposition to God and his word still realize and acknowledge that there's some ethic out there that says hurting other people is wrong. Justice, our idea of justice lets us know that there's something higher at work. Now, here's the thing. Somebody could say, well, mankind, in order to exist better, has decided to uh, have communities and society, and it's better for society if people, if they're going to live together in peace, not to steal or rob from each other or commit adultery with each other's spouses. It's better for society, and all these things are social constructs. Well, that would explain uh, justice but how does it explain mercy? How does it explain the fact that there are people out there that are not strong, that are weak and mercy? Here's what Jesus said, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down one's life for his friends. The truth of the matter is we do not build statues and honor the people that are selfish me only, out for number one, but we honor those people that lay down their lives, that do good works, that show compassion. Those are the people that we honor. Why? Because we know that there's something higher there at work. But you can, even then you could say, well, laying down your life, you're laying down your life for your friends. Well, how does that explain the quality of mercy? When you lay down your life for somebody that's not your friend. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your neighbors, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Loving the unlovable. Why? Because we are called to a higher standard because we were created In the image of God. The very fact that human beings can recognize the nobility of of sacrifice. The nobility of self-denial. These things don't come naturally to to animal kind. They don't come naturally to mankind. They are things that are submitted to a higher call. In fact, listen, just the sense of, of the eternal in man is a clue to there's a God. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 and 11 says that God has put eternity into the heart of human beings. That we have a sense that there is an eternity out there. You say, well, how did that come to be? Well, listen, every society, every nation, every race that has ever lived on planet Earth had some type of religious system, some type of belief in a higher being, and some type of hope of eternity. Now how do you explain that? Because God put eternity into the heart of man. We just know that there's more. Our faith is a logical faith if we look at it from the standpoint of history. And archaeology, have you ever heard people say that archaeology disproves the Bible? Well, I'm going to give you several quotes here to show you that the history and the archaeology actually prove what Scripture says. Dr. Cliff Wilson said, I know of no finding in archaeology that, that's properly confirmed, which is in, the, in opposition to the Scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen. Dr. Jack Cottrell said, through the wealth of data uncovered by historical and archaeological research, we are able to measure the Bible's historical accuracy. In every case where it claimed where its claims, the Bible's claims, can be thus tested, the Bible proves to be accurate and reliable. Bright C. Wood said, in every instance where the findings of archaeology pertain to the biblical record, the archaeological evidence confirms, sometimes in detailed fashion, the historical accuracy of Scripture. Dr. Nelson Gluck said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever converted a a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And Dr. William F. Albright, William F. Albright was the man who confirmed the authenticity of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He said this, The reader must rest assured that nothing has been found by archaeologists to disturb a reasonable faith. And nothing has been discovered which can disprove a single theological doctrine the Bible can stand for itself. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. And then uh, Millard Burroughs, professor of archaeology at Yale University... In the 1950s said, On the whole, however, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. In other words... If you look to science, it proves that there's an intelligent designer. If you look to nature, it proves that there is a God somewhere. If you look to the conscience of man, it proves the existence of a higher being. And you look at the historical record and of the archaeology, and it proves that scripture is right when it speaks to the history. It is an accurate textbook of history. But we look higher than that. We can look to prophecy itself what the Bible has to say about itself. More properly, what the Bible has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, it said he would be born of a woman. In Matthew 1.20, that happened. In Micah 5.2, he said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.1, that happened. Isaiah 14 said he would be born of a virgin. Matthew 1.22 and 23, that happened. Genesis twelve three said that Jesus would be born from the line of Abraham. Matthew 1, 1, that happened. Genesis 17, 19 said he'd be descended from Isaac. And in Luke 3, 34, that happened. Uh, in Numbers 24 and 17 said he'd be the descendant of Jacob. And in Matthew 1, 2, that happened. Genesis 49 and 10 said Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. Luke 3, that happened. Isaiah 9 and 7 said Jesus would be the heir to the throne of his father David. Luke 1, 32 and 33, that happened. Isaiah 7.14 said his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1, 23, that happened. Hosea 11.1 said Messiah would spend a time in Egypt and in Matthew 2.14 and 15 that happened. Jeremiah 31.15 said there would be a massacre of children of Bethlehem at his birth and in Matthew 2.16 and 18 that happened. Isaiah 403 and 3 through 5 said that there would come a messenger that would prepare the way for Messiah Luke 3 uh, chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 that happened Psalm 69 and 8 Messiah would be rejected by his own people John 1 11 that happened Deuteronomy 8. Uh, and verse 15 said Messiah would be a prophet. Acts 3, verses 20 through 22, that happened. Isaiah 11, 1, Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2, 23, that happened. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, Messiah would bring light to the Galilee area. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, that happened. Psalm 78, two through four, Messiah would speak in parables. Matthew 13, 10 through 15, that happened. Psalm two and six, Messiah would be called king. Matthew 27 and 37, that happened. Psalm eight and two, Messiah would be praised by little children. Matthew 21 and 16, that happened. Psalm 41 and nine, Messiah would be betrayed. Luke 22, 47 and 48, that happened. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, nine through 10, that happened. Psalm 35, 11, he would be falsely accused. Mark 14, 57 through 58, that happened. Isaiah 53 and He would be silent before his accusers. Uh, and in uh, Mark 15, four and five, that happened. Isaiah 50 and 6, he would be sped upon and struck. Matthew 26 and 7, that happened. Psalm 35, 19, Messiah would be hated without cause. John 15, 24 through 25 that happened. Isaiah 53 and 12, he would be crucified with criminals, Matthew 27, 38, that happened. Psalm 69, 21, Messiah would be given vinegar mixed with gall to drink, Matthew 27 and 34, that happened. Psalm 22 and 16, his hands and feet would be pierced, John 20, 25 through 27, that happened. Psalm. 22, 1 through 8, he would be mocked and ridiculed. Luke 23 and 35, that happened. Psalm 22, 18, soldiers would gamble for his garments. Luke 23 and 34, that happened. Uh, uh, Psalm 34, 20, his bones would not be broken. John 19, 33 and 36, that happened. Psalm uh, 22 and 1, he would be forsaken by God. Matthew 27, 46, That happened. Uh, In Psalm 109 and four, he would pray for his enemies. Luke 23, 34, that happened. Zechariah 12, 10, his side would be pierced. In John 19, 34, that happened. Isaiah 53 and nine, he would be buried with the rich. Matthew 27, 57 through 60, that happened. Psalm 16 and 10, he would rise again on the third day. Matthew 28, two through seven, that happened. Psalm 24, seven through 10, he would ascend into heaven. Mark 16, 19, that happened. Psalm 68, 18, Messiah would be seated at the right hand of God. Mark 16 and 19, that happened. Isaiah 53 and verses five through 12, he would be the sacrifice for sin. Romans five, six through eight, that happened. You can believe because God fulfilled his word in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that, give him a hand clap of praise. Amen. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the person of Jesus Christ. 300 prophecies that were every one fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Someone said if you were to take eight, just eight of those prophecies, eight of the 300, just eight of those prophecies, the odds of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies is so astronomical, it can only be explained this way. If you were to take the entire geographical mass of the state of Texas, and fill it two feet deep with silver dollars. Now Texas is a big state. You can start out at sunrise on the eastern part of Texas and at sundown you'll still be in Texas headed west. And you fill that whole state two feet deep in silver dollars. And take one silver dollar and put an X on it. And then if you were somehow able to stir all of those silver dollars and take one man and drop him in the heart of Texas and blindfold him and tell him you could walk for as far and as long as you want to. But whenever you decide to stop, reach down and pick up one silver dollar and he takes off of that blindfold and he's holding the one silver dollar with the X on it. Those are the same statistical chances of one man fulfilling only eight of those prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 of those prophecies. You could have confidence because This book is a prophetic book and it has fulfilled and Christ has fulfilled its prophecies. If you want to see the hand of God, you can look at the Jewish people. The king of Prussia many years ago asked his physician, give me proof of the existence of God. The physician said that's easy. The existence of the Jewish people. Do you realize that the Jewish people were scattered across the earth when Rome went in and destroyed the city? Do you realize that six billion of them were murdered in Nazi Germany? Do you realize that the Bible says in Isaiah 66 and 8, it asks the question, can a nation be born In a day, do you also realize that on May 14th, 1948, after 2,000 years out of their land, God fulfilled his promise and made the nation of Israel a nation once again in one day? There are many infallible proofs. Jesus himself is proof. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two says, God who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Someone said the testimonies of the ancient historians reveal how even those outside the early church regarded Jesus to have been a historical person. It remains difficult, therefore, if not impossible, to deny the historical existence of Jesus when the earliest Christians, Jewish and pagan, evidence mention him, and then there is—if you need proof—if there, there's only something God could do that nobody else could do. Maybe if He could rise from the dead. And is there proof of it? 1 Corinthians 15:3 through 7. Paul said, I deliver to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Paul said, I heard this. Somebody told me this. I heard this, that, that he died according to the scriptures for our sins. And that he was buried. And that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. I received that. And he said, the people I received it from were these people. That after he rose from the dead, he was seen by Peter Cephas. Then he was seen by all 12 of his apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren all at the same time. And most of those people, he said, are still alive to this day. And then he was seen by James and all of the apostles. Now, if I were accused of a crime, and the prosecutor was trying to try my case. And my defense attorney said, okay, I've got over 500 people that'll testify to seeing him at a certain place whenever you said he was committing that crime. Do you think I'd win my case? Sure I would. <laughs> if I had 500 people that had seen me, and yet I'd hear somebody say, well, Those were all Christians. Of course they would say that. The problem is, is the dude writing this was not a Christian. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He thought they were blasphemers. He was putting Christians in jail. He probably, he was there when the first Christian martyr... Was killed. He was there. He was there pumping his fist. Say yeah. stone him. But here's what that man. That was the enemy of Christians. And the enemy of Christ said. Paul. He said last of all. He was seen by me. Also. I saw him too. As one born out of due season. Certain laws of evidence hold in the establishment of any historical event. Documentation of the event in question must be made by reliable contemporary witnesses. There is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived. Or that Alexander the Great died at age 33. It is is strange that historians will accept thousands of facts for which they can produce only shreds of evidence. And yet the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. Lee Strobel was a, a um, reporter. His wife became a Christian. And he was a devout atheist. And he set out to prove to her that Christianity was wrong. And after he studied the historical facts, not only did he become a Christian too, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Josh McDowell was a young uh, student in London. He ran into a Christian girl that was a, uh, a young lady that was a Christian. He scoffed at her faith and she challenged him. She said, Okay, go out and prove it to me what you believe. And he studied the claims of Christ, and not only did he become a Christian, but he wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We can see. From the contributions that the Christian church has made to society, hospitals, universities. Did you know our first 123 universities in the United States were created as Christian universities? You say, oh, well, they must all be extinct now. No, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Now, they lost their way, but they were started to train preachers. The literacy and education for the uh, masses, free enterprise, representative government, separation of political power, civil liberties, abolition of slavery, modern science, the discovery of the new world, the elevation of women, benevolence and charity, higher standards of justice, uh, the elevation of the common man, the the condemnation of adultery and sexual perversion, high regard for human life, civilizing of barbaric and primitive cultures, the codifying and setting of writing of world's language and all of the great art and music, all that owes itself to the Christian church. But, as great as that is, the greatest evidence for God and Jesus and the Bible is transformed lives. The disciples, the apostles, were so frightened of death and of arrest that they hid out in the upper room and locked the door, but after they knew that Jesus was alive, they gladly gave their lives, proclaiming that he lives. Now a person may die for a lie But not many will ever die for a lie that they know is a lie. And they gave their lives with the truth of the resurrection. In the 19th century, there was a famous atheist who challenged a Christian to a debate. And the Christian said, okay, I will debate you. But you're going to have to play by one rule that I've got. One rule. In order to substantiate the validity of my belief system and your belief system, I want each one of us to get 100 people whose lives have been changed for the better as a result of your belief system. The Christian said, I'll get 100 people that'll give testimony that the gospel has changed their life for the better. He said, if you get 100 people that atheism has changed their life for the better. He said, I'll tell you what, if you can't get 100, just get 50. I'll get 100, you get 50. He said, if you can't get 50, just get 20. He said, if you can't find 20, just find one whose life has been changed for the better because of their belief in atheism. And their lack of belief in a God. And I'll get a hundred whose lives have been changed by the gospel. The atheist bowed out of the debate. Have you ever noticed that you don't ever see atheist hospitals? Atheist orphanages. Have you ever noticed that? Lives transformed. I heard about a guy... Who he grew up in a in in uh, kind of a rural area, and his daddy was known. His daddy was a little bit well off for his day, but he was he was known for being a hard man. And and the young man I'm talking about, uh, all of his brothers and he himself were alcoholics. Very, very, very bad to, to drink in rebel rallies. And this young man was walking after drinking all night, was walking through the woods one night and heard something in the woods that sobered him up and he cried out to the God of heaven to save him. His name was Moses May. And he was my great-grandfather. The evidence for God and the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ has transformed lives. I want to go one better, and I'm trying to hurry. But as great as that is, listen at this. Romans 8:16. All kinds of it, from science to archaeology to society. To the heavens, to mankind, to our conscience, to natural law. All proofs. All proofs. But this is the best one. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now I'm not talking about just an emotional experience because emotions can lead you astray and emotions can let you down. But I still believe that if you've been born again, there is something way down deep in your knower where the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that a change has taken place and you are a child of God. My name is in the book of life. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. I rise above all doubt and strife and read my title clear. I know, I truly know, my name is written there. I know, I know my name is written there. My name once stood with sinners lost and bore a painful record, but by his blood the Savior crossed and placed it on his roll. Yet inward trouble often cast a shadow or by title, but now with full salvation, blessed praise God, it's ever clear. I know, I know, I truly know my name is written there. I said I know, I know, I know that my name is written there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of Almighty God. Anybody ever had the Spirit bear witness with you that you're a child of God? Amen. I can take you to 1157 Alice Street, went Cross, Georgia, and take you to a place and tell you the time where the Lord saved me by his amazing grace. I know! Because the Spirit bears witness with my spirit. Now let me tell you, in closing, Peter said, you know what? If you need proof, let me give it to you. He said, me and James and John went up with Jesus on a mountain. And when we were on that mountain, we beheld his glory. That's what John said. When we were on that mountain, we saw him standing with Moses and Elijah. And while we were watching, he began to shine like the sun. Peter was so excited, he wanted to build three tabernacles for each of them. And the glory of God, like a cloud, came in and overshadowed them. And God, I heard, Peter said, the voice of God out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when I looked up, I saw no man but Jesus only. And then Peter said, as great as that was, 2 Peter 1, 19, We have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a prophetic word confirmed. We have a light in the darkness. Now let me tell you why I know I'm saved. Because this word of prophecy says, if I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, I shall be saved. How many know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved and on the way to God's heaven. Stand up and give the Lord Jesus a hand clap of praise. Come on. Let's give him praise together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.